Good morning to you all. If you have a copy of God's Word, please go ahead and open up to Philippians 1. A warm welcome to everyone in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm very thank- thankful for all of you, that all of you are here. And if you're a visitor, I'd like to make a connection with you at the end of the service. I'll be out in the foyer, and I'd love to talk with you. Philippians 1. This morning, we're going to be piggybacking on last week's sermon, how I ended. One of the points of application last week was that as Christians, due to the difficulties of this life, there will be points in this life whenever we want to die and be with Christ. And I argued last week that that's okay. It's okay to be in that type of position. Now, Christians never harm themselves. That's something that that they ought to never do. We never act upon that desire to take our own life. The Bible discourages that. God does does not look upon suicide with favor. But it is okay to desire to depart from this life and be with Christ. Look at Philippians 1, 23. I got that point of application from this passage. Notice what Paul says here. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. What Paul is saying there is that he desires to leave this earthly life and to be with Christ in heaven. He desires to die and be with Christ. And if it's okay for him to desire that, it's also okay for us to desire that. In this life, we can run into many difficulties and trials and those difficulties and trials can wear us down to a point that we want to be done with life itself. That's real. That's something that we might all experience in our life at various times. And my sermon this morning, the passage that we'll be exploring this morning, is for those Christians who are discouraged, those Christians who are battling their bodies, ailments, discouragements in their family, cancer, all different types of trials who are discouraged with life itself and who long to be with Christ. My message is for you this morning. And the message that I have is one of hope. The Christian religion is a religion of the future, of heaven, of the new heavens and the new earth when we will receive our resurrection bodies. We have hope in the future. But we also have hope right now. Emmanuel, God is with us, not just later, but right now. And because of that, we have hope. In your discouragement, in your desire to want to die and be with Christ, God has a purpose for you. God is not done with you yet. As long as you have life, you have a purpose. That's the general theme we'll be unpacking this morning. And our text is Philippians 1, 25 through 26. Let's go ahead and read it. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In order to unpack this passage, you gotta start with the beginning of verse 25. Paul says, convinced of this, you see that. Anytime you see a this or that or these or those, those are not specific words, you have to interpret them. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is Paul convinced of here in verse 25? I take it that what he's saying 
in verse 25 is he's convinced of verse 24. Well, what does verse 24 say? Paul is convinced that remaining in the flesh is more necessary for the Philippians. That's what he's saying in verse 25. And then he says this, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. To be quite honest, I don't know the logical connection that Paul is making here. I don't know what Paul is saying at the beginning of verse 25. Peter in 2 Peter said some things that Paul says are hard to understand. So I'm going to take that approach this morning and agree with the Apostle Peter. Some things he says are hard to understand. But one way we might explain this is that maybe as an apostle, he has an awareness of his life that we don't. We generally don't know when we're going to die. I don't know if that was the case with Paul. I think he might have had some type of apostolic revelation as to when he would die. And evidence for this, listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, okay? So 1 Timothy is one of Paul's later books. It's one of the books that Paul writes right before he dies. And listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will a one day will, will award me or to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's tone in First Timothy, right before he's about to die, is different than his tone in Philippians. What does he say in Philippians? He says, I will continue living. In 1 Timothy, he says, I'm about to die. Now, how do we reconcile these two things? I'm not sure. But one way we might is that somehow, some way, Paul knows when he is going to die. In the book of 1 Timothy, he's, he's very close to the point, and he knows through some revelation of Christ that he will die soon. But in Philippians... He knows he will live. That's one way we explain this text. I'm not sure, though. But to understand the sermon and to understand what follows, we don't have to understand what Paul is saying there. The importance for our passage is what follows that statement of convinced of this. Notice in verse 25, you have this word for, for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is providing us the reasons for why he will continue living. Paul is explaining for us what his life in the future holds. So why will Paul continue to live? What are the purposes? What are the reasons for Paul's existence? There are three. There are three. The first is for, quote, your progress in the faith. For the Philippians' progress in the faith. And this is our first point this morning. This is for us. This is our first point. We live... We live to see others progress in their faith. We live to see others progress in their faith. Paul has a lot to say about this notion of progress and perseverance in the book of Philippians. A lot of the book has statements regarding progress. Look at 1.6. Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying there is he is sure that God will complete this progress, this process of progress in the Philippians. God is the author of salvation, and God is the finisher of salvation as well. Paul is convinced that in the Philippians, those whom God has begun this process of salvation, he will complete it. He will complete their progress in the faith. Paul reminds them of this. He tells them of this. Now go to 2.12. The Philippians' progress in the faith, God's working in them, is not, does not exclude works, does not exclude effort. In our progress in the faith, it is God doing it, yes. But the way God works is he produces in us the desire for good works. 2.12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Progress in the faith comes about through effort. If you want to make progress in your faith, you have to try very, very hard. That's what Paul is saying. You've got to keep going for the discouraged. You've got to keep waking up and getting up during, in the morning. You have a reason to get, get up out of bed, and you've got to keep going. Now, this keep going, these good works, these things that we do out of love, verse 13 are built upon what God is working in us. The reason why we make progress in the faith, our hope for others making progress in the faith, is that God is at work. Our doing and willing and striving, our good works, our love, is a result of God's work. It's not the cause of God's work. It is the result. So Paul tells the Philippians to keep going through word. He expresses that through speech. Now, go to 3.12. Now, Paul evidences this, prog this desire to see the Philippians progress in their faith through his example. 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me, made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here is Paul is modeling what he wants to see in the Philippians. He's modeling this notion of progressing in the faith. So through speech, through word, through encouragement, through exhortation, and through lifestyle, through example, through choice, Paul is modeling for the Philippians what he wants their faith to look like. And the application point for us is that we ought to seek, as we have life, so long as we have days here on this earth, we should seek in others the progress of their faith. As you have life, you have a purpose. No matter how hard life gets, no matter the difficulty, God always, and that purpose, one of those purposes, 
is to seek in other that they progress in their faith. And the way that you do that, the way that you engender this in other people, is through both speech and example. We are called to love one another with our words. We're called to speak the truth in love. We're called to remind other Christians of Christian truth, doctrine, theology, that God is at work, Emmanuel, God with us. We remind others. And also in our lives, we model that faithfulness. If you want to see others be faithful through trial, what they need to see in you is you being faithful through trial. They need you, they need you as, a, as an example. And as you, as you have life, this is what you ought to do. To seek in others, to see in others the progress of their faith. Second point. We, all, we seek the progress of faith and we also seek other people's joy in the faith. We live to see, this is the, the second point, we live to see others have joy in their faith. We live to see others have joy in the faith. Going back to verse 25. What is Paul's reasons for living? One was the progress of their faith, the progress of the Philippians' faith. And secondly, for your, for their joy in the faith. Paul is set on living. And one of the reasons why he has to get out of bed is to see in the Philippians their joy in the faith. That's the idea that Paul's saying. And as we approach this point, there's, a, there's an objection that immediately arises. And this is the objection. So, Pastor, you're saying to me, in light of my discouragement, in light of the difficulty, in light of everything difficult going on in my life, I am supposed to seek in others' joy. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Now, Pastor, how do I do that when I'm so discouraged? How do I do that when all I know is difficulty? How do I do that? Does not difficulty and sorrow swallow up joy? Are these two ideas not antithetical, exclusive to one another? That's a good objection. But what I want you to see this morning from, Philipp from the book of Philippians, from Paul, is that in the Christian life, we will have this intermixing of joy and sorrow. It is possible and likely that in your life you're going to have periods of sorrow and joy. And we see that in Paul. Look at 2.17. It is possible and likely for both joy and sorrow to coexist in your heart at the same time. Paul mentions both of these. He mentions sorrow and he mentions joy. The first thing he mentions is sorrow. 2.17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, that statement is referring to sorrow. What Paul is saying there is, even if I have to be discouraged for you, dot, 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 this notion of being poured out as a drink offering, it can mean two things. It can, one, either mean missionary efforts. Now, missionary efforts involve discouragement, depression, adversity, sickness, or it can mean martyrdom, that Paul would give his life up for the Philippians to the point that he actually sheds his blood for them. And that too obviously involves sorrow and discouragement and depression. 
But then look what Paul says at the end of verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, even if I have to experience sorrow for you, the end of verse 17, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul experienced both joy and sorrow in the same verse. And I imagine that many of you experience the same. The two are not opposed to each other. This Christian life is one of difficulty. We come into this world prone to death. Now God steps in our lives and saves us. And that produces great joy. But still, our joy is always hindered in this life. Our joy is not yet complete. There's coming a day when it will be complete. But in the meantime, we suffer and we struggle. But we also have joy and we also have victory. And what this means for you in seeking the type of faith to give to others, right? So what's the type of faith? If I should seek in others, excuse me, if I should seek in others joy, what type of joy should I give to others? It's not a prosperity gospel joy. The prosperity gospel teaches that God wants to, you to have prosperity, wealth, popularity, health in this life. That if you don't, it's because you lack faith. If you give that type of joy to people, a joy that is built upon circumstances, you will crush them. True joy is not circumstantial. The joy that we seek to inculcate in others is not based upon circumstances. It's based upon Christ alone. The type of joy that we give to others is a sober joy. It's a joy that's not yet complete. True joy, but it's not full. There's coming a day when it will be full, but now, in this period of life, we struggle. And that type of faith is what we give to others. Listen to this. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism. This is the type of joy I think we need to give to others. This is the question that they ask. What is your only comfort in life and death? That's a very good question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer. That I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That definition of joy entails difficulty. In this life, you will experience difficulty. But the joy that we give to others is that Jesus is greater than the difficulty. And one day, there will be no more difficulty. One day when Jesus returns, he will raise our bodies from the dead. 
and we will live with him forever. But that day is not yet. And in the meantime, we struggle and we suffer. But Jesus' promises are true. And that his grace will get us through the difficulty. And that his grace is enough. That's what we give to others. And the application of this, the way we do this in in the lives of others, is through both word and example. Word and example. We need to encourage others with our words. We need to be loving, sympathetic, kind. Don't be a nitpicker. Seek in others what you can find to encourage them in. Do not boast. Do not talk about yourself. Do not talk about your accomplishments. Seek to build others up. Encourage, compliment, thank. Such basic ideas that are oftentimes hard to do. Encourage other people in their faith. And then secondly, through your life, you should live in a way that imparts to me joy in Christ and vice versa. I should live in a way that imparts you to you joy in Christ. And this is a good example of this. Speaking of death, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous English preacher, as he was on his deathbed dying from cancer, he couldn't speak. And he wrote these words to his wife two days before he died. He said, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from glory. Wow. That's joy. That gives me joy. That's the way we live. That's the way we die. We go out of this world proclaiming the goodness of God. And as we do that, you will encourage others in the community of faith. You will encourage their joy in the faith. Last point, from verse 26. Convinced of this, verse 25, I know I will remain and continue with you all. Dot, dot, dot. Verse 26. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Write this if you're taking notes. We live to see others boast in Christ. We live to see others boast in Christ. The idea is simple, what Paul's saying here. Paul seeks to return to the Philippians. He wants to see them again. After he gets out of prison, he's going to see them again. And upon his arrival, what he wants their response to be is he wants them to be glad in Jesus. He wants their confidence in Christ to overflow, to abound. He wants them to find their sufficiency in Christ. A simple idea. But I think that we can unpack it a, a bit more, and I think the one way we can unpack it is with, a, with an illustration. An illustration using mirrors. Mirrors are, we all use mirrors, we all look at ourselves in the, in the morning. If you didn't, you probably should have. We all use mirrors. And sometimes we use mirrors not to look at ourselves, but at other things. If you have a little dental mirror, you put it in your mouth, you look at your teeth. Uh, one of my children said to me recently, Dad, why are your teeth so yellow? I, maybe I need to use a, a dental mirror a little bit more. So we use these mirrors to look at different things. And our lives, our lives are like people looking in a mirror. 
As people look at us, they see how they should respond to difficulty, how they should respond to life. One way that we should act, rather one way we can act, not necessarily we should, is to not hold up a mirror, but for them to look at us and for us to posture ourselves in a way that they seek to find their sufficiency in us. Look at me, I, I'm the answer to your problems. I can help you in a way that no one else can. I have all the answers. So we don't hold up a mirror, we, we accept the gaze. Now that's narcissism, and as Christians we shouldn't do that. Another way though is to hold up a mirror. But the direction of the mirror is pointed back at them. So as people look at us, they seek counsel from us, they seek advice, they seek, where do I find hope and joy in life? What is my only comfort in life and death? They look to us to answer that question. And we might get that mirror and point it back to them. Say, you know what, you're the answer. You can do it. You can find your sufficiency in yourself. You just gotta keep trying harder. That's not the Christian religion. We cannot save ourselves. Another way we could get a mirror and we could point it not back at them, but at other people. Look, find your identity in other people. Find your identity in popularity. Find your identity in being liked. Find your sufficiency in others' opinions. That's not what we do. The last option, though, we hold this mirror. As people look at us, how do I, where do I find my comfort in life and death? We have a mirror. And what we do with that mirror is we point it up. We point it to Jesus Christ. And so as people look at us for counsel, for wisdom, as people seek to find in us the answer to what is my only comfort in life and death, what they see is Christ. What they see is Christ. That our lives are a means of reflecting. That we do away with any type of self-conceited notion that we are the answer or that other people or that that person looking at us is. But rather, Christ is everything. And Paul's whole life was doing this, reflecting to others Christ. He would get Windex and constantly clean that, that mirror so that others see clearly that their sufficiency is not found in him, in themselves, or in any other person, but in Jesus Christ. And that as people gaze at us and as we reflect their gaze away, that we seek that their sufficiency would be in Christ alone, and that that boasting that confidence in Christ would abound more and more and more. That's what Paul's saying. Paul wants his life, Paul wants his actions to be a means of their boasting in Christ. How do we do this? How do we do this? We do this both through word and speech. We boast in Christ, we boast in others. We seek to build others up. We seek to, I, we seek to not talk about my kids and my accomplishments and what's going on in my life, but what's, what's going on in you? What are your kids doing? We seek to make much of others and make, make much of Christ. And then through our example, we befriend other people. Sometimes the most important thing we need in life is someone to just listen to us. And we befriend others. And then as we befriend them, we posture and model selfless love. We posture and model what it means to boast in Christ. To not find identity in this life. To not find identity 
in other people and ourselves, but to find it in Christ. In the Christian walk, we have great hope. That hope is future, though. True, complete, full joy is future. We do not have our best life now. That's coming. And in the meantime, as we struggle through depression and discouragement, we have to remember that God has given us hope right now. Yes, hope is future. Yes, joy is future. Yes, salvation is ultimately future. But in the meantime, we have hope. We have reasons to get out of bed. You have that purpose, no matter what you're going through. And the purpose, what God wants you to do in the difficulty, is not to become myopic and self-centered. It's very easy in difficulty to do that. When you say to Christ, Jesus, I want to be with you. Take my life. It's very easy to become inward focused and only focus on yourself. As you have life, your purpose is not you. Ask God for the grace to not be myopic in your suffering. Other people are suffering as well. And in the difficulty, what God wants us to do is to posture ourselves towards others. This is the love that Christ calls us to and that he himself embodied. This takes a great work of grace, but he is sufficient. Amen? Father, we ask and pray for your blessing. We ask and pray for the encouragement of the discouraged. Father, I pray that you would open up their eyes to see the great purpose you have for them, that you're not done with them, that you're not done with us, Father. That no matter how old, no matter how discouraged we are, that you have given us a purpose. And Father, that purpose is others. Father, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you produce in us a desire to see others progress in their faith, to have joy in their faith, and to boast in Christ. We pray that we would posture selfless love and sacrifice for others, and that you would give us the grace that so long as we have breath, we are going to serve you here in this world. Create and produce these good works in us, Father, by the power of the Spirit and based upon Christ's death for us. In his name, amen.